0: chapter 4 of principles of economics book 6 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org principles of economics book 6 by alfred marshall chapter 4 earnings of labor continued the action of demand and supply with regard to labor was discussed in the last chapter with reference to the difficulties of ascertaining the real as opposed to the nominal price of labor. But some peculiarities in this action remain to be studied, which are of a more vital character. For they affect not merely the form, but also the substance of the action of the forces of demand and supply, and to some extent they limit and hamper the free action of those forces. We shall find that the influence of many of them is not at all to be measured by their first and most obvious effects and that these effects which are cumulative are generally far more important in the long run than those which are not, however prominent the latter may appear. The problem has thus much in common with that of the tracing of the economic influence of custom. For it has already been noticed, and it will become more clear as we go on, that the direct effects of custom in causing a thing to be sold for a price, sometimes a little higher and sometimes a little lower than it would otherwise fetch, are not really of very great importance, because any such divergence does not, as a rule, tend to perpetuate and to increase itself, but on the contrary, if it becomes considerable, it tends itself to call into action forces that counteract it. Sometimes these forces break down the custom altogether, but more often they evade it by gradual and imperceptible changes in the character of the thing sold, so that the purchaser really gets a new thing at the old price under the old name. These direct effects, then, are obvious, but they are not cumulative. On the other hand, the indirect effects of custom in hindering the methods of production and the character of producers from developing themselves freely are not obvious, but they generally are cumulative, and therefore exert a deep and controlling influence over the history of the world. If custom checks the progress of one generation, then the next generation starts from a lower level than it would otherwise have done and any retardation which it suffers itself is accumulated and added to that of its predecessor, and so on, from generation to generation. And so it is with regard to the action of demand and supply on the earnings of labor. If at any time it presses hardly on any individuals or class, the direct effects of the evils are obvious. But the sufferings that result are of different kinds, those the effects of which end with the evil by which they were caused, and are not generally to be compared in importance with those that have the indirect effect of lowering the character of the workers, or of hindering it from becoming stronger. For these last cause further weakness and further suffering, which again in their turn cause yet further weakness and further suffering, and so on cumulatively. On the other hand, high earnings and a strong character lead to greater strength and higher earnings, which again lead to still greater strength and still higher earnings, and so on, cumulatively. The first point to which we have to direct our attention is the fact that human agents of production are not bought and sold as machinery and other material agents of production are. The worker sells his work, but he himself remains his own property, those who bear the expense of rearing and educating him receive but very little of the price that is paid for his services in later years. Whatever deficiencies the modern methods of business may have, they have at least this virtue, that he who bears the expenses of production of material goods receives the price that is paid for them. He who builds factories, or steam-engines, or houses, or rears slaves, reaps the benefit of all net services which they render so long as he keeps them for himself, and when he sells them he gets a price which is the estimated net value of their future services, and therefore he extends his outlay until there seems to him no good reason for thinking that the gains resulting from any further investment would compensate him. He must do this prudently and boldly, under the penalty of finding himself worsted in competition with others who follow a broader and more far-sighted policy and ultimately disappearing from the ranks of those who direct the course of the world's business the action of competition and the survival in the struggle for existence of those who know best how to extract the greatest benefits for themselves from the environment tend in the long run to put the building of factories and steam-engines into the hands of those who will be ready and able to incur every expense which will add more than its cost to their value as productive agents but the investment of capital in the rearing and early training of the workers of england is limited by the resources of parents in the various grades of society by their power of forecasting the future and by their willingness to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their children this evil is indeed of comparatively small importance with regard to the higher industrial grades for in those grades most people distinctly realize the future, and discount it at a low rate of interest. They exert themselves much to select the best careers for their sons, and the best trainings for those careers, and they are generally willing and able to incur a considerable expense for the purpose. The professional classes especially, while generally eager to save some capital for their children, are even more on the alert for opportunities of investing it in them and whenever there occurs in the upper grades of industry a new opening for which an extra and special education is required the future gains need not be very high relatively to the present outlay in order to secure a keen competition for the post but in the lower ranks of society the evil is great for the slender means and education of the parents and the comparative weakness of their power of distinctly realizing the future prevent them from investing capital in the education and training of their children with the same free and bold enterprise with which capital is applied to improving the machinery of any well-managed factory. Many of the children of the working classes are imperfectly fed and clothed. They are housed in a way that promotes neither physical nor moral health. They receive a school education which, though in modern England it may not be very bad so far as it goes, yet only goes a little way and they have few opportunities of getting a broader view of life or an insight into the nature of the higher work of business, of science or art. They meet hard and exhausting toil early on the way, and for the greater part of it keep to it all their lives. At least they go to the grave carrying with them undeveloped abilities and faculties, which, if they could have borne full fruit, would have added to the material wealth of the country." to say nothing of higher considerations, many times as much as would have covered the expense of providing adequate opportunities for their development. But the point on which we have specially to insist now is that this evil is cumulative. The worse fed are the children of one generation, the less will they earn when they grow up, and the less will be their power of providing adequately for the material wants of their children, and so on to following generations." And again, the less fully their own faculties are developed, the less will they realize the importance of developing the best faculties of their children, and the less will be their power of doing so. And conversely, any change that awards to the workers of one generation better earnings, together with better opportunities of developing their best qualities, will increase the material and moral advantages which they have the power to offer to their children, while by increasing their own intelligence, wisdom, and forethought, such a change will also to some extent increase their willingness to sacrifice their own pleasures for the well-being of their children, though there is much of that willingness now, even among the poorest classes, so far as their means and the limits of their knowledge will allow. The advantages which those born in one of the higher grades of society have over those born in a lower consist in a great measure of the better introductions and the better start in life which they receive from their parents and the importance of this good start in life is nowhere seen more clearly than in a comparison of the fortunes of the sons of artisans and of unskilled laborers there are not many skilled trades to which the son of an unskilled laborer can get easy access and in the large majority of cases the son follows the father's calling In the old-fashioned domestic industries this was almost a universal rule, and even under modern conditions, the father has often great facilities for introducing his son to his own trade. Employers and their foremen generally give to a lad whose father they already know and trust a preference over one for whom they would have to incur the entire responsibility. And in many trades a lad, even after he has got entrance to the works, is not very likely to make good progress, and obtain a secure footing, unless he is able to work by the side of his father, or some friend of his father's, who will take the trouble to teach him, and to let him do work that requires careful supervision, but has an educational value. And the son of the artisan has further advantages. He generally lives in a better and cleaner house, and under material surroundings that are more consistent with refinement, than those with which the ordinary laborer is familiar." his parents are likely to be better educated and to have a higher notion of their duties to their children, and last but not least his mother is likely to be able to give more of her time to the care of her family. If we compare one country of the civilized world with another, or one part of England with another, or one trade in England with another, we find that the degradation of the working classes varies almost uniformly with the amount of rough work done by women. The most valuable of all capital is that invested in human beings, and of that capital the most precious part is the result of the care and influence of the mother, so long as she retains her tender and unselfish instincts, and has not been hardened by the strain and stress of unfeminine work. This draws our attention to another aspect of the principle already noticed, that in estimating the cost of production of efficient labor we must often take our unit as the family at all events we cannot treat the cost of production of efficient men as an isolated problem it must be taken as part of the broader problem of the cost of production of efficient men together with the women who are fitted to make their homes happy and to bring up their children vigorous in body and mind truthful and cleanly gentle and brave As the youth grows up, the influence of his parents and his schoolmaster declines, and thenceforward, to the end of his life, his character is moulded chiefly by the nature of his work, and the influence of those with whom he associates for business, for pleasure, and for religious worship. A good deal has already been said of the technical training of adults, of the decadence of the old apprenticeship system, and of the difficulty of finding anything to take its place here again we meet the difficulty that whoever may incur the expense of investing capital in developing the abilities of the workman, those abilities will be the property of the workman himself, and thus the virtue of those who have aided him must remain for the greater part its own reward. It is true that high-paid labor is really cheap to those employers who are aiming at leading the race, and whose ambition it is to turn out the best work by the most advanced methods they are likely to give their men high wages and to train them carefully, partly because it pays them to do so, and partly because the character that fits them to take the lead in the arts of production is likely also to make them take a generous interest in the well-being of those who work for them. But though the number of such employers is increasing, they are still comparatively few. And even they cannot always afford to carry the investment of capital in the training of their men as far as they would have done, if the results of investment accrued to them in the same way as the results of any improvements they might make in their machinery. Even they are sometimes checked by the reflection that they are in a similar position to that of a farmer who, with an uncertain tenure and no security of compensation in his improvements, is sinking capital in raising the value of his landlord's property. Again, in paying his workpeople high wages, and in caring for their happiness and culture, the liberal employer confers benefits which do not end with his own generation. For the children of his workpeople share in them, and grow up stronger in body and in character than otherwise they would have done. The price which he has paid for labor will have borne the expense of production of an increased supply of high industrial faculties in the next generation, but these faculties will be the properties of others, who will have the right to hire them out for the best price they will fetch, Neither he nor even his heirs can reckon on reaping much material reward for this part of the good that he has done. The next of those characteristics of the action of demand and supply, peculiar to labor, which we have to study, lies in the fact that when a person sells his services, he has to present himself where they are delivered. It matters nothing to the seller of bricks, whether they are to be used in a building of a palace or a sewer, but it matters a great deal to the seller of labor, who undertakes to perform a task of given difficulty, whether or not the place in which it is to be done is a wholesome and a pleasant one, and whether or not his associates will be such as he cares to have. In those yearly hirings which still remain in some parts of England, the labourer inquires what sort of a temper his new employer has, quite as carefully as what rate of wages he pays. This peculiarity of labour is of great importance in many individual cases, but it does not often exert a broad and deep influence of the same nature as that last discussed. The more disagreeable the incidents of an occupation, the higher, of course, are the wages which require to attract people into it. But whether these incidents do lasting and wide-spreading harm depends on whether they are such as to undermine men's physical health and strength or to lower their character. When they are not of this sort, they are indeed evils in themselves but they do not generally cause other evils beyond themselves. Their effects are seldom cumulative. Since, however, no one can deliver his labor in a market in which he is not himself present, it follows that the mobility of labor and the mobility of the laborer are convertible terms, and unwillingness to quit home and to leave old associations, including perhaps some loved cottage and burial ground, will often turn the scale against a proposal to seek better wages in a new place." and when the different members of a family are engaged in different trades, and a migration, which would be advantageous to one member, would be injurious to others, the inseparability of the worker from his work considerably hinders the adjustment of the supply of labor to the demand for it. But more of this hereafter. Again, labor is often sold under special disadvantages, arising from the closely connected group of facts, that labor-power is perishable, that sellers of it are not commonly poor and have no reserve fund, and that they cannot easily withhold it from the market. Perishableness is an attribute common to the laborer of all grades. The time lost when a worker is thrown out of employment cannot be recovered, though in some cases his energies may be refreshed by rest. It must, however, be remembered that much of the working power of material agents of production is perishable in the same sense for a great part of the income, which they are also prevented from earning by being thrown out of work, is completely lost. There is indeed some saving of wear and tear on a factory or a steamship, when it is lying idle, but this is often small compared with the income which its owners have to forgo. They get no compensation for their loss of interest on the capital invested, or for the depreciation which it undergoes from the action of the elements, or from its tendency to be rendered obsolete by new inventions. Again, many vendable commodities are perishable. In the strike of dock laborers in London in 1889, the perishableness of the fruit, meat, etc., on many of the ships, told strongly on the side of the strikers. The want of reserve funds, and of the power of long withholding their labor from the market, is common to nearly all grades of those whose work is chiefly with their hands but it is especially true of unskilled laborers partly because their wages leave very little margin for saving partly because when any group of them suspends work there are large numbers who are capable of filling their places and as we shall see presently when we come to discuss trade combinations it is more difficult for them than for skilled artisans to form themselves into strong and lasting combinations and so to put themselves on something like terms of equality in bargaining with their employers. For it must be remembered that a man who employs a thousand others is in himself an absolutely rigid combination, to the extent of one thousand units among buyers in the labor market. But these statements do not apply to all kinds of labor. Domestic servants, though they have not large reserve funds, and seldom any formal trades union, are sometimes better able than their employers to act in concert. The total real wages of domestic servants of fashionable London are very high in comparison with other skilled trades in which equal skill and ability are required. But on the other hand, those domestic servants who have no specialized skill, and who hire themselves to persons with very narrow means, have not been able to make even tolerably good terms for themselves. They work very hard for very low wages." Turning next to the highest grades of industry, we find that as a rule they have the advantage in bargaining over the purchaser of their labor. Many of the professional classes are richer, have larger reserve funds, more knowledge and resolution, and much greater power of concerted action with regard to the terms on which they sell their services, than the greater number of their clients and customers. If further evidence were wanted that the disadvantages of bargaining under which the vendor of labor commonly suffers depend on his own circumstances and qualities, and not on the fact that the particular thing which he has to sell is labor, such evidence could be found by comparing the successful barrister or solicitor or physician or opera singer or jockey with the poorer independent producers of vendable goods." Those, for instance, who in remote places collect shell-fish to be sold in the large central markets, have little reserve funds and little knowledge of the world, and of what other producers are doing in other parts of the country, while those to whom they sell are a small and compact body of wholesale dealers, with wide knowledge and a large reserve fund, and in consequence the sellers are at a great disadvantage in bargaining. And much the same is true of the women and children who sell handmade lace, and of the garret-masters of East London who sell furniture to large and powerful dealers. It is, however, certain that manual laborers as a class are at a disadvantage in bargaining, and that the disadvantage, wherever it exists, is likely to be cumulative in its effects. For though so long as there is any competition among employers at all, they are likely to bid for labor something not very much less than its real value to them, that is, something not very much less than the highest price they would pay rather than go on without it, yet anything that lowers wages tends to lower the efficiency of the laborer's work, and therefore to lower the price which the employer would rather pay than go without that work. The effects of the laborer's disadvantage in bargaining are therefore cumulative in two ways. It lowers his wages, and, as we have seen, this lowers his efficiency as a worker, and thereby lowers the normal value of his labor and in addition it diminishes his efficiency as a bargainer and thus increases the chance that he will sell his labor for less than its normal value End of chapter four